Thank you for joining us in worship this morning, both here and online, and thank you for joining us on this journey that we are calling Jesus 365. And today we are looking at the demands of discipleship. I think you've heard that very clearly. And uh, we're falling in love with Jesus all over again. And we are rediscovering Jesus. And we're asking tough and honest questions. Uh, we have some missionary partners that are in Lebanon. Many of you have had the chance to meet uh, Maha and Shawi Bulis. And a few years ago, I had an opportunity to go and be a part of that with Ron Ledbetter. And uh, the Bulises, they do these incredible, they, he holds these Jesus revivals all over the Middle East. And they're typically three night long revivals. And and it's just, they're called Jesus celebrations and publicized and, and you show up at this thing and they're 800, 900, 1,000 people at this event center, this closed down church that they've rented out and music and singing. And he gave me an opportunity to preach a couple of those nights. And we forget, those of us who have heard the gospel over and over and over again, we forget how good that news is when you hear it the first time. We forget the news that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting. We forget how powerful and good that is. And it was just a simple, simple message about Jesus and the gospel and we had had some discussions with Shawi, like, what, what have you learned? How, how, this is such a mixed audience. A few people will know something about Jesus. Most have heard nothing about Jesus. They come from different religious backgrounds. And he, he said, this is how I've learned the best way with this kind of audience to do an invitation. And then you can ask Ron and that they just start coming down. Not tens, but I don't know, a couple hundred Ron come down and, and so his wife, Maha, was kind enough to serve as my translator. And uh, she said, please keep it sentences short. You know, so very short sentences in the sermon. And then she is my translator talking with people as they're coming down. And I still, these four women come down on this side together. And we're standing there and they come up. So the conversation is Arabic, Arabic, English, Arabic, Arabic. It's just back and forth. And you start to get a headache after a while. And I said, why have you come down? And one of them says, our families are in Syria and we don't know if they're safe. We can't get in touch with them. Will you pray for them? Of course. So we pray for their families in English and in Arabic. And, and then the one who's kind of the spokesperson for the group with tears in her eyes after the prayer, she said, what are you asking us to do? What would you say? What are you asking us to do? I said, we're asking you to invite Christ into your life and to follow Jesus. And she said, that's what I want to do. The power of this message. Today we're looking at how serious this is for Jesus. 
We are in Luke chapter 9, and for those of you joining us, we started in Luke's gospel at the beginning of the year, and that will carry us all the way through Easter, and then we're going to go to the I am sayings in John, and then parables, and then finally to the Sermon on the Mount in the fall. Uh, And this begins in Luke's gospel, what we call the travel narrative. He has been in the region of Galilee. He's kind of stayed in the area where he's grown up. And beginning with this passage, he is on the road, and he will be on the road to Jerusalem all the way through chapter 19. And he is inviting people to follow him to Jerusalem. And now it's going to get serious. So let's read this just a couple of verses at a time. We'll begin with the first verse, Luke chapter 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, which is a language Luke will use here in the book of Acts that will refer to the ascension, not just the death of Jesus. It's a way of encompassing both his death and his resurrection and then the ascension, leaving the disciples behind and the mission that we will embrace. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem set his face. It's not the first time you've seen that phrase if you are a Bible reader. Sometimes in the Old Testament it shows determination and intent. Sometimes it shows determination towards hostility. This is not about hostility but it's a way of capturing this is now what Jesus is going to do and he is determined to do this. He has clear intent and purpose for what he is about to do and now things are going to change. And this is the response. He sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. It seems that politics are always a part of the world in which we live. When Israel divided itself against itself and two kingdoms were eventually destroyed, what was left behind in the northern kingdom are a group of Yahweh worshipers. They have their own version of the first five books of the Bible. They have their own way of worshiping at Mount Gerizim. And they know Jesus. Something about him. They know where he's going. And because he is going to Jerusalem, he is now guilty by association. We would never do that, of course. We we treat all people as individuals and listen fairly to what they are saying and what they are thinking. And yeah, he's hanging out with the wrong people. He's going to the wrong place. He doesn't share their politics. He doesn't share their brand of what it means to worship Yahweh. And so they did not receive him. This is one of the reasons we're doing Jesus 365. It's time for us to take some of the tribalism that we have established and some of our way of doing it and and we're right and they're wrong. And and, and I'm a firm believer. I had a wonderful discussion Wednesday night with one of our members about how important doctrine is, but, but it's also important that we dialogue with each other, that we learn from each other, that that we still recognize the community of God is larger than just the brand that we have here today or some of the things that we share in common and we can still hold on to those and value those. 
And if ever there's a time for the kingdom of God to unite, if ever there's a time for followers of Jesus to say, okay, we might have these things, we might believe differently about these things, but we still have these things in common and we can link arms and hands and resources and prayer and remember the mission that Jesus has given to all of us. And this is very interesting because next week, the passage we are at is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke is not giving up on telling us the story about the Samaritans. Jesus himself clearly isn't giving up on the Samaritans. But it's the response of the followers of Jesus. It's the response of those who are not with us, those who are, might be just a bit different from us. Notice this next paragraph. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, that the Samaritans would have nothing to do with them. No, you're going the wrong way. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's a bit strong, don't you think? That's a bit, not that we would ever overreact, you know, not that we would ever respond too hardly against those that have different beliefs from us. Oh, that is, I want Jesus to say, go ahead and give it a shot. Go ahead. Give it your best try. Let's see how, just because you think it should happen doesn't mean God's going to do it. God's very good at determining right and wrong. You know, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. I think they're practicing a first century version of WWJD. I think they are doing what they think Jesus wants them to do. I think they're doing, oh, what would Jesus do now? Oh, it's time for some of that fire and brimstone. It's time, it's time, let's burn them. And Luke says, Jesus rebuked them. One of my Greek professors in seminary made a big deal about this word. It occurs more often even in Mark's gospel, the rebuke word, he rebuked them. Outside of the New Testament, one of the ways that word is used is to muzzle a dog. Yeah, doesn't that put it in perspective? He made us translate it that way. Jesus muzzled them like a dog. <laughs> no more barking. That is enough. And they went on. There's a lot of anger out there. A lot of anger. The journey of Jesus was never a search and destroy mission. It was a seek and save venture. It's time for us to remember this. They have a problem with their understanding of who Jesus is. They haven't quite gotten it, haven't quite ingrained it yet, haven't quite integrated it into their lives. It's going to come later, loving your enemies. It's going to come later, how you respond to people that disagree with you or even treat you in the wrong way. This is a good lesson for them. It's a good lesson for us this morning. As we are in a world divided, as we are in a world that may not always respond well to the beliefs that you have, that may not always understand the relationship that you have with Christ or why that is so important to you or why you want to share it. Is the response anger? Is the response vindication? So I'm in seminary, uh, we're, in, uh, we're, in, we're at this little great, wonderful little church in Kentucky, and um, there's probably, the church sits on top of this little hill, and, and then in front of it, 
is now a gas station and, and a few little stores linked together. And this gas station is being built and it's gonna be from the front door of the church to the back wall of the gas station isn't much further than our front door. That's, that's, about, that's about where it was. And this is in Kentucky and they are going to sell beer and people are angry. And we're talking about it one Wednesday night and, and uh, you go through all the procedures and, and it's just far enough away that legally it's, there's nothing that can happen. It's, it's going to happen. And it's two ladies in the church, very sincere, said on a Wednesday night, a prayer meeting, we are praying that it will burn down. I said, but what about the video store attached to it? She goes, we haven't thought about that. I said, what if the wind blows this way? She said, we haven't thought about that. <laughs> Maybe there's a better prayer than calling fire down from heaven. <laughs> Maybe we need to create some relationships and get to know some people and have a chance to be a part of their lives and and Jesus rebukes them. And then this passage gets very uncomfortable. There are three encounters in the next paragraph, three encounters that Jesus has with individuals who want to follow him, but they have something they need to take care of first. And, and the conversation lacks the compassion that we normally think about with Jesus. So all, all I wanna say before we read these individually is, You've got to put this in the larger context of what you know about Jesus. You have to put this in the larger context of conversations where Jesus has shown compassion and love. And now put this in the context of Jesus is saying, it begins now. I am, my face is set to Jerusalem and, and I'm inviting you to follow me. This is serious stuff. And here's the first one. As they were going along the road, to Jerusalem, not through that Samaritan village, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds like something Peter would say. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, oh good, come right along. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. That's not really how you get people to follow you on, on social media. That's just not, yeah. Isn't that an interesting response from Jesus? He's being very upfront. He's being honest. He warns them there's going to be a lot of roughing it. Philip Sharpner, Sharpner he's the, uh, an editor with, with Orbis Books, says a popular church metaphor is that, of the is, is that of the people of God on pilgrimage. But a more apt metaphor should be that of the people of God as nomads. Pilgrims know where their journey is headed. Nomads are called to go by uncertain paths to a place that shall be made holy. I love that. That shall be made holy at some indefinite time by something God shall say or do. And there's no God. No God except a pillar of fire by night and a wind-driven cloud by day. Sounds and symbols of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, I'll follow you may not be what you thought it was going to be. It, it may be different than you imagined, 
This is really serious. And, and in the next two conversations that happen, they're even more difficult to hear. He's teaching and driving home his point. And let me just say before this one, Jesus is known to use hyperbole. When we get to Luke chapter 14, there's a crowd that's come out to hear Jesus. And he will look them in the face and say, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your father or mother or brother or sister. Something teenagers love to hear. And Matthew will say, ah, if you hate your family more than me. And he'll say, you, you, you can't follow me. You can't be my disciple unless you give up everything that you own." He, this is serious for Jesus. And so in the next encounter, another said to another, Jesus looks at this person. We have no name. Follow me. And he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Which seems so reasonable. So understanding, there, there are very um, elaborate and meaningful rituals involved in the ancient world at this life-changing event. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Startling. Shocking. You can read it as, where's, where's the compassion? We've seen that before. This is a different point. Jesus is offering this person a new purpose for living, a, a new way of living. Jesus is inviting this person to begin a whole new life, and it's serious, and it isn't easy. Jesus is saying, in this one and in the next ones, first things need to be first things. Or to borrow from the Southern theologian, Ricky Bobby, if first things ain't first, they're last. And Jesus is saying, this has to be first. He's setting his face towards Jerusalem, even though he knows what's going to happen. Another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I don't know. Maybe Jesus senses a lack of resolve in this person. Uh, maybe Jesus has seen this before. Peter jumps in the water willingly and then vacillates and has doubts and begins to sink. But in all of these encounters, we certainly see Jesus is saying, all right, this is changing, and now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and I am inviting you to come with me on this mission that will change the world. And it is serious, and it is full. And the call is to be faithful and it is no less serious, and it is no less full. Discipleship is costly, and the need is pressing. And I want to say to you that the reward, let me change that. Discipleship is costly, but it's incredibly rewarding. 
finding that place where God has called you. It is my pleasure to introduce to you one of our members, some of you have met, Bill Geisel. Bill, would you please come up and join me for a few minutes? This is Bill. Uh, his wife and son are over there. You got a, two or three other sons out there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, you do. They're in the Knoxville area. Bill, uh, now just do a short verse. Bill, you were in pastoral ministry for 25 years or so, and that is not what you're doing now. Uh, something happened. So Bill is the state minister for Tennessee with Capital Commission, one of your sponsors. We, we also believe in the mission you're doing, and, and uh, thank you. We're so, I'm so grateful that God has brought you here. So first of all, tell us part of what you are doing. Then we'll come back to how you got there. We, can we do it that way? Sure. Okay. Pastoring for 25 years, first couple of churches um, were, uh, were as youth pastor and saw a tremendous growth and sometimes explosion, so that was a lot of fun. And then a couple of senior pastorates, um, they were also pleasant and enjoyable and challenging. language change there. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Wasn't quite the same, and, uh, but fulfilling for sure. And then God um, led us out of pastoral ministry briefly. Uh, we were pastoring northern Indiana and uh, to be an executive director of a small, uh, of a startup nonprofit, which was actually, interestingly enough, um, uh, modeled after a significant nonprofit ministry here in Knoxville. So we came to Knoxville um, 13 years ago okay. to, to learn about that. And I, uh, so I left my pastorate by invitation of a, of a friend who establishes, and then, uh, so we got started, it was new, lots of work to do. Four months in, he called me into his office. Um, he was the president of the organization and a gal from his church, uh, a wife of a couple that they knew, uh, was founding it together. And four months in, he told me that they were having an affair, got discovered, and I was suddenly thrown into a tailspin and had to figure out uh, what do we do now? And uh, so we stayed for a year, established and studied that. And then um, it was necessary to make a break. And they gave us a severance. And we looked at each other and said, first time in 25 years, I don't have a job. And I'd never looked for one, never sent a resume, always been sought after. And so my wife is originally from Kingsport, so um, her folks were getting elderly, and we said, we'll move down there, and we'll, we'll find uh, a, a way to establish a ministry, a, perhaps a conference ministry, grossly underestimating that if no one knows you, you're not going to get invited. <laughs> and most of our <laughs> ministry had been up north. We had met at Bible College in Chattanooga. But God had sent us north for ministry, so we came down a different region, and so quickly starving. And, uh, and shortly after that, God connected us to Capital Commission. So tell us about Capital Commission, what Cap you're doing there. Yeah, so Capital Commission, I am state minister, which means, uh, practically speaking, 
uh, our organization establishes uh, state ministers in capitals all across the country, currently in 23. I'm here in Tennessee. And we function like chaplains at the state capitals. So we're missionaries. We have to raise our own support to do this. That was interesting at 50 to have that shift. And so we show up and we, um, I, I, I like to say, I showed up one day seven years ago at the Capitol and said, Tennessee, buckle of the Bible Belt does not have a, an official chaplain at our legislature. I'm him. I'm him. I'm it. Self-declared. Self-declared. Hello. How are you doing? I'll chaplain you. And uh, so it was kind of interesting, but it's really a, a matter, we'd say it this way, a matter of prayer, presence, and proclamation. So we come in, I'll never forget, at that time, one of our legislators from Knoxville, we connected early, good man, and he would take me from office to office and say, this is Bill. He's a chaplain here, and he'd like to pray for you. It's like, okay, so I'm going to start praying for people here. That has become a very significant ministry tool that God has used. And then we talk about presence, that God does his work in this world through his people. And so wherever God's people are, that's where the word of God has power and presence. And so moving through the capital, being a pastoral presence and offering pastoral care to people who need it. So it's being kind and thoughtful and gracious and asking people how their day is and how are things going and suddenly god opens a door and there's a broken heart and the way god does that it's amazing and then sometimes it's legislators not just staff it's legislators you'll walk down the hall have these serendipitous god-oriented god-directed conversations and, and then there's proclamations. So I do Bible studies at the Capitol. We have one for legislators called our member study. And we have one for staff. And uh, over the years, just continuing to watch that grow. We're having a problem right now where our Bible study this year, we've had the largest conference room at the Capitol. And it's, it's, uh, we're way past the 80% rule for those of us that know what that means. We're, we're packing the place and we have to start looking for a new place. But I'm grateful. There are a lot of my colleagues cross country who are now having to look for places off site because those political arenas are not friendly to us being there. I was going to say, given how united our country is, it sounds like a cakewalk. At the Capitol. Yeah, yeah, let me tell really you, it's easy. interesting. Yeah. There is a party that's oriented toward coming to Bible studies and so on, and there's a party that is the minority party and not so much. Tell me, um, this is not what you set out to do. So put this in the context of following Jesus to Jerusalem. How it's tough? Yeah, it's... It, you know, when you called me yesterday, immediately is this thought, this is never what I expected to be doing. I had, when I was pastoring in Indiana, I had a state representative who attended my church. Be careful in case this goes out on the internet. D attended my church, but um, he and his wife did, and they had one little child. And, um, and he was well known in the community. And I worked with him in his job in the community. 
But it appeared to be that he came to church because that was necessary in rural Indiana, much like rural Tennessee, very conservative. If you wanted to have a, a win a race, a political race, you had to have a church affiliation. And it appeared as though he kept that distance and, that's, and he came. And I never asked him much about what he did. I, I really had no idea what they did at the Capitol. I wasn't politically motivated or involved or oriented never asked and he had lots of issues that unfolded for him there and when this surfaced and God called us to this it was like Lord I, I, I failed that man and I need to do this because this was never my world I didn't understand it so it was uncomfortable and challenging I'm people person shepherding is my passion so being in a flock and being among the people um, still to this day, it's an orientation for me, and I miss it. But God had a plan. I couldn't see it. It's not what I would have chosen. And he has placed me there. Uh, some of my seminary work was in Christian leadership. So here I am now working with our state leaders, our government leaders, many of whom go on to federal positions, have opportunity to influence them. So influencing the nation by influencing leaders, only God could write that script. Thanks for being a nomad. Very much. Not knowing where it goes. Um, thank you for saying yes to Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what Bill's doing, you, you can see his email address on the board and shoot him an email or catch him here at church. And Thank you for letting us be a partner with what you're doing. Thank you. a Lutheran professor, uh, Michael Rognes, writes about visiting, it was an African-American church that he went to, and the pastor said, what's God been doing in your life lately? He said, if you had asked that at his Lutheran church, the people would have sat, sat there in shocked silence. That church evidently was used to it, and they just started one after one saying what God was doing that day in their life, and they would stand up give a response and everyone would applaud and someone else would stand up and give a response and they would applaud and we're asking you this morning so what's god been doing in your life lately the journey we are asking you to join us on is not a vacation it's a vocation please note Jesus doesn't travel to Jerusalem alone. Please note, as soon as he announces, I'm going to Jerusalem, he starts inviting people, follow me. Challenging? Yes. Will it take you out of your comfort zone? I imagine so. Are we asking you to do it alone? Never, ever, ever. But this is important. Will you follow Jesus today? Let's pray. And so, Lord, we have heard your dialogue and discussion. We have heard your response to your own disciples and to the possibility of new disciples. 
And today, you call us to follow you because it is still life-changing and important and first things must become first things. Hear us as we have doubts. Hear us as we voice our fears. And hear us timidly or boldly as we say yes. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to sing and we invite you to worship with us. And if you've never invited Christ into your life, I say to you, just as we said to the group of Syrian women, why don't you invite Christ into your life? Why don't you stop doing it your way and do it God's way and why don't you experience some relief and help, forgiveness and grace, and joy and purpose in your life? If you've never said yes, please do that. Please give us a chance to talk to you about what it means to begin that journey. We also invite you to join us as a community of faith who are asking important questions, but also looking inward and looking outward. Where's this journey taking us? How can we do that together? How can we be the people God has called us to be? Will you stand as we worship?